Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this is part two of Kink Week. Hooray. Yes, on Stuff Mom Never Told You. In part one, we talked about BDSM or Bondage Discipline Dominant Submission Sadomasochism. And today we're going to focus in on the dominatrix. Yeah, a fascinating character. If you're just looking at it as a trope, it's it's a fascinating character on its own. I mean, this is a character who has been part of our pop culture and popular imagination for a really long time. But when we delve a little bit further and look at the the men and women, typically women, who are actually filling these roles out in the real world, the character becomes even more fascinating. Yeah, so why don't we talk pop culturally at first? Because even though the work of professional dominatrixes, dominatrices, or prodoms is considered taboo for a lot of people, dominatrix fashion is all around us, especially if you open up editions of Vogue or other kinds of high fashion mags. Yeah, reading for this episode, it struck me that it seems that the more high fashion uh, a magazine or whatever is, uh, the more likely they are to feature sort of almost bordering on really graphic uh, BDSM and dominatrix imagery. It seems to be really ingrained in high fashion culture. Yeah, Vogue Paris went through a really a BDSM heavy phase where there were lots of ball gags in high fashion spreads. So it's interesting to see how that happens. But as we learned in a post over at Fashionista, this has been a consistent theme of photographers, really starting with Man Ray, who we talked about for a, a while, actually, in our BDSM episode, because this surrealist artist and photographer had a penchant for photos of women in bondage gear and different kinds of bound poses. And then there are other photographers like Guy Bourdain, Helmut Newton, and David LaChapelle, who also have tended to have a heavy focus on the BDSM get-ups. And not surprisingly, since we see these kinds of themes and depictions so often in high fashion editorials, we also see it on the catwalk, uh, especially in the 80s and more in the 90s with Terry Mugler, which I should say in a fancy French accent like Terry Mugler, who was known for a lot of dominatrix styles in his in his label and his uh, runway shows. Yeah, and, and off the runway and out of just fashion photography, we do see a lot of BDSM themes start to become common in high fashion editorials and magazines. So not it's not just recently, but it's it's been sort of a common thing for a while now. Yeah, and it's really become a go-to aesthetic for female pop stars. This is once you start looking for different examples and see just how many there are, it's really interesting that of course starting with Madonna, kind of all the time, but especially with her 1992 album Erotica, in which she adopts the persona of Mistress Dita. 
she, uh, you know, you first start to see these dominatrix kinds of fashions, these BDSM kinds of themes. This is echoed later in her confessions tour in the mid-2000s. This is also echoed in, in outfits that she's worn for red carpet events in uh, recent times as well. So she has, has been a main pop star to do that. And so, of course, there's the Madonna ripple effect. Yeah, with Britney Spears and her work bitch video, Rihanna's S&M song and video, and, of course, multiple Lady Gaga. Looks. It was even, uh, it even cropped up in Zoolander with Mila Jovovich's character, and in an episode of Frasier where Roz dresses like a dominatrix to go to a Halloween party, and it's the same episode where she finds out she's pregnant, uh, and she worries about being a good mother because here she is going to a party dressed as a as a pro dom, um, and Frasier says, "Well, I don't think your kid's going to have to worry about discipline." And I like that you just used the the term "cropped up." Dominatrices. Accidental puns. Um, So, but speaking of Frasier, though, okay, so this has also become a commonly stereotyped TV on character and film, not just when Roz dresses up on Frasier. And Catherine Scott over at Bitch Magazine wrote about this and how a lot of times... A lot of the depictions that we will see in pop culture are play on a lot of stereotypes that don't take a favorable view of the dominatrix. Yeah, she points out that on TV and in movies, these dominatrix characters are usually white, very unfeminine, with severe personalities, and it helps, you know, if they have a Russian or German accent to boot. And domination isn't just their sexual persona, it's really their overall defining trait. Yeah, so you have comedic examples like you just mentioned, Caroline, Mila Jovovic as Katinka in Zoolander. There's Frau Farbissina in Austin Powers, and then for not so much a comedic take, there's Lucy Liu in Charlie's Angels, who does a dominatrix as part of her spy work. And same thing, too, when uh, Angelina Jolie poses as a dominatrix at one point in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So it also seems like we are fine with sexy lady spies dressing up in, in this kind of gear, which might be why in Ricka Schubert's book, Super Bitches and Action Babes, the female hero in popular cinema, 1970 to 2006, Ricka writes, quote, Fundamental to the construction of the female hero in modern popular cinema is the archetype of the dominatrix. So basically, dominatrix looks are, are almost like a signal to the audience that this woman is outside the norm, that she's either way stronger than the average woman or super unfeminine, something along those lines. It seems that way. I mean, you do have uh, Eartha Kitt as Catwoman in the old Batman series. And let's not forget Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, too. Yeah. I mean, those kinds of leather latex jumpsuits are still rather dominatrixy, and they're pretty sexy. But of course, these two characters are are not necessarily lauded for their for the gentle femininity. Right, exactly. And and a lot of people would say that that's what's so attractive about them. Um, There's also characters uh, like Jennifer Tilly in Bride of Chucky. 
which is hilarious to bring up because how often do you get to talk about Bride of Chucky? It, really not enough. Really not enough. Was, uh, we should we should do a side podcast just focused on the Chucky franchise. Um, and then there's the character of Irene Adler in the Sherlock episode, the Iceman, the Virgin, and the Dominatrix. But her nudity in her scenes with Sherlock isn't what a real pro dom would do. Yeah, and we'll talk about that a little later in the podcast. But Catherine Scott over at Bitch does praise a couple of examples of sort of normalizing dominatrices, not as these either punchlines for the hell, like masculine these women are, or just needing to have some kind of uh, outward costumey symbol of their physical strength or mental dominance. Uh, she highlights Mimi Wu in the book, The Girl Who Played With Fire, who is in a stereotyped depiction. And then also Lady Heather, who is a recurring dominatrix character on CSI, who also becomes at one point a possible love interest. So it's sort of normalizing her in a way. But moving out of pop culture and away from film and television, who are dominatrices really? Who are pro-doms, Caroline? Well, this definition is coming courtesy of Danielle Lindemann, who wrote Dominatrix, Gender Eroticism and Control in the Dungeon. And she defines pro-doms as women who receive money to physically and verbally dominate male clients who are submissives, subs, or slaves through spanking, flogging, verbal humiliation, bondage, cross-dressing, and other tactics. So let's look at where the the dominatrix and the pro-dom came from. Yeah, and some of this brief cultural history we're going to trot through will be familiar to those of you who listened to our previous episode on BDSM. But for this, we're going to focus in not just on the overall history of BDSM culture, but really where this usually female figure first arises. And Anne O. Numis, who wrote The History and Arts of the Dominatrix, found the first mentions of secular dominatrices in books from the 17th through the 19th century. Because before that, there are more pagan and sort of semi-religious dominatrix figures. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're looking more at just the secular. Yeah, and the history starts basically where our BDSM history started, which is with flagellation. Let's, let's all get on the flag train. So we get the first mention of erotic flagellation in 1590, and women who perform these activities are known as whipstresses, schoolmistresses, or governesses, which I think is telling. <laughs> yeah. And Numis also hides, and this was highlighted in a couple of other sources as well, how there is this legend, though, that predates the whipstresses involving Aristotle and I believe a lover of Alexander the Great named Phyllis, who, as legend goes, Aristotle had set his romantic sights on. But eventually, Phyllis ends up dominating Aristotle. And there are these depictions, artistic depictions of Phyllis restraining Aristotle and essentially kind of riding him like a horse yeah, for lack of saddle. yeah for lack of a better descriptor and this stretches back to the middle ages and there are artistic depictions of this that also appear in renaissance art so we do have phyllis an early possible legendary 
dominatrix or whipstress mm, of sorts. Whipstress. I mean, that just, honestly, I'm going to be honest, people, and this is going to say way be more. Be honest. It's going to say way more about me than it's going to say about anybody else, Kristen, and that is that whipstress just makes me think of whipped cream. That makes sense. Yeah. They both contain the word whip. They do, and I just like whipped cream. Anywho, moving out of art and into the written word, in 1718, we get the publication in England of the Treatise on the Use of Flogging. So it's good. We're, we're, we're setting ground rules down in writing. And then in 1791, we get who is perhaps history's first dominatrix in literature, Juliet, in the Marquis de Sade's Justine, and later in The Story of Juliet. And then in the early 19th century, moving out of literature and into real-world events, there is a London-based dominatrix named Teresa Berkeley who operated an early 19th century equivalent of what would be called a BDSM dungeon today. And men would frequent Berkeley's establishment to do what men frequent dominatrix houses to do today as well. They would get chained up, whipped, birched, and caned. And she apparently was became known for her eponymous Berkeley Whipping Horse, which is now property of the Royal Society of the Arts. And no one's entirely sure how the Whipping Horse was used, um, but... Hey, Teresa Berkeley, an inventor, an early dominatrix, an entrepreneur. This woman was a real, a real Jill of all trades. <laughs> and then in 1870, we get another groundbreaking book. It's the publication of Venus in Furs by Austrian writer and journalist Leopold von Sacker Massach. And so there you have, as we talked about in our first episode, the namesake for masochism and earlier with Marquis de Sade, sadism. Now this is interesting in 1877, this guy named Henry Ashby, who is sort of an amateur pornographer and also uh, sort of a, a, a amateur historian of uh, erotica and pornography at the time, writes this bibliography of forbidden books. And in volume one, Ashby points out, quote, it is a well-known fact that women are and always have been even more fond of wielding the rod than men, and this passion pervades the higher rather than the lower classes. And consider that this is being written, too, in the 19th century, when, as we talked about in our last episode, there was so much flage porn being made and enjoyed in Victorian-era England. Yeah, and much like in our first episode, when we jumped very far forward from the Victorian era and their flage porn and their fascination with spanking and being repressed and all that stuff, and we jumped way forward to about the 1930s through the 1960s. And it's much the same with the history of dominatrices. We jump forward to 1951, when Cat Catherine Rob Grillet, who would become France's most famous dominatrix, becomes the mistress to writer and future husband, Elaine Rob Grillet. And there's this fascinating uh, Vanity Fair article about her that Kristen sent me. And it sort of, I mean, it delves into the lifestyle in, in a way that none of the other articles I read did. I mean, it's a fascinating look into the life of someone who has completely dedicated her entire existence to living this way. And she's in her 80s now. Yeah. And she still has, I mean, she's still a practicing dominatrix and hers takes on more religious overtones as well. There are almost kind of sacraments that take place when she is performing her dominatrix 
arts, for lack of a, a more refined term. Um, so if you head over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com and look at this podcast post, it'll have a link to that Vanity Fair piece that we do recommend you read. So this is happening, though, in the 1950s. And what's not covered, though, in that Vanity Fair piece is what kind of cultural, immediate cultural impact she had. And that's mm-hmm. what I'm curious about, because she's known now as France's most famous dominatrix, but I wonder how long it took for her to become known outside of her and her then husband's circles. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, though, I mean, she was obviously part of some sort of upswell, some upsurge in this happening, because in the 1960s, that's when the commercial dominatrix arrives on the social landscape. Yeah. And La Domain SMR in upstate New York is supposedly the oldest BDSM training chateau, which I think probably started in maybe like the late 60s or 70s, because it's only, you know, 20 or 30 years old at this point, which means actually my math is way off. <laughs> Let's put it more in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and speaking of the 80s, there was an early 1980s study that found there were 2,500 pro-doms in the U.S. visited by approximately 100 to 150,000 men. But that's before... That's before it really went mainstream, and we saw it go super mainstream in the 90s with people like Madonna, Nine Inch Nails, and Joan Jett all incorporating the look of dominatrices and BDSM into their videos. So now we want to know, what is it like for a working dominatrix today? How, literally, how does this work? And we're going to talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. One thing I noticed in researching for this episode is just how seriously, and not that they shouldn't, obviously, but just how seriously people take this line of work, of being a pro-dom, of working in a dungeon, of filling this need that they perceive to exist in society. It's it's interesting to go through, not only and read the articles about this lifestyle, this culture, and this profession, but also to read the comments under the articles, because inevitably, and I hope we do receive feedback too, I'd love to hear from people who are participating in this, but inevitably, the, the people commenting on the articles will have a lot of strong opinions about the articles themselves, because they are living this every day, and they are making a living off of it. Yeah, and and to that point, speaking to Alternate, Susan Wright, who's the president and founder of the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom, which is a BDSM rights organization, said, quote, It's more a mixture of performance art and sexual stimulation, and a pro-dom is in a position of power, which is very different from being a stripper or an escort. That puts being a pro-dom in a very different category of sex work. And in the studies that we read, because yes, there are academic studies that exist all about dominatrix work, interviews with pro-doms, and particularly pro-doms who come to the profession through the lifestyle rather than thinking, hmm, how can I make some extra money being a dominatrix? Done. A lot of them are really adamant about differentiating what they do 
from prostitution, which is really right. interesting. You can you can categorize it as erotic labor, absolutely. But some would say, don't call it sex work. Yeah, Danielle Lindemann, who we cited earlier, who's done a lot of research into this for a book and papers on the topic, did delve into this issue of money versus authenticity and who who is more authentic, the person who does it because she wants to earn money or the person who does it because she considers it an art. And so there's this issue of money among doms who consider themselves real versus the phony commercial doms who aren't doing it for the so-called art. But and she calls this the non-economy economy and that the artists, quote unquote, are the ones who actually charge more for the services they're providing. Well, and it's also not just a concern over money, like being in it just for the money, but as a lot of the, the more lifestyle oriented pro-doms. Um, are, are concerned about the people who might jump in it for the money, literally do that. They jump in without any prior mm-hmm. training, which as we went over a lot in the prior episode on BDSM, training and understanding how things work and how to inflict pain without actually damaging the body, things like that, are really important for doing this kind of work safely. Right, yeah. One woman that Lindemann talked to said she was uh, really put off by one dungeon where she worked because they were just trying to turn a quick buck and the subs that were coming in were making all of these demands and were basically being, uh, were, were topping from the bottom, so to speak. And she was saying that these people don't know how it works. They expect me to, you know, do things like hand jobs or other sexual activities while I'm being a, a, the pro dom that I am. And this is not how it works. This is not just to turn a quick buck and perform some sex acts. And speaking of training, it can range from a formal intensive apprenticeship to just jumping in, usually at scene parties or in less structured houses like that. So, for instance, Anne Onumis, who he cited as the author of The History and Arts of the Dominatrix, underwent an 18 hour per week dungeon apprenticeship. And those kinds of prodoms take that level of training very seriously. They're the ones who will go to some place like La Domaine Esmar in upstate New York to the Chateau mm-hmm. to train there from other prodoms who have been doing it for a while. And they kind of work their way up through a system. Yeah. What I wish I could remember what this is from, but there was some quote in one of the sources that will be on StuffMomNeverToldYou.com after this episode um, talking about how they were looking into emergency room visits and the reason for emergency room visits. And on a Sunday morning, the most common reason for people to be in an emergency room in New York is a bagel slicing accident, like cutting yourself while making breakfast, essentially. And they were like, and I did not find a single instance of a BDSM or dominatrix related injury Sunday morning. So tell me, what is more dangerous, eating breakfast or going to a dominatrix? Watch out for that schmear. Yeah, but I mean, but that's I mean, that's it's like a a funny aside or whatever. But I mean, I think that does point out the importance of safety to a lot of people in the community that that it's not a joke, that this is something that you have to be trained for. You can't, like you said, just jump into because people could get really hurt, especially when you're doing bondage stuff. I mean, you could tear ligaments. You could end up accidentally choking someone. So it's it's sort of a it's an art, but it's a serious art. Yeah. And and so for that reason, 
Most prodoms will start out at larger dungeons and then work their way toward being independent. And the advantage of being part of a larger dungeon is the same way. It's like with any line of work. It's the same way that being with, say, a larger corporation offers its perks. So an established dungeon will provide advertising, a client base, tools of the trade and training. (laughs) Again, just like any kind of job with a larger employer probably will. But houses often have high turnovers from dominatrices having to give them a cut of their session fees, just kind of getting disenchanted with the work, and also dungeon hopping, which happens, which again, this sounds a lot like especially millennial work patterns, just (laughs) hopping from job to job. From job to job, dungeon to dungeon. And, you know, I mean, obviously not to sound like an old lady, but the Internet has really made things easier, not only to form that community like we talked about in our first episode, but also to market yourself, to provide free advertising. And as one of the sources we looked at said, um, a lot of these independent pro-doms will say, you know, mistress so-and-so, formerly of the such-and-such dungeon. And so they're still sort of playing off the popularity or the, the cachet that that name has. Yeah, and the, the Internet probably allows you to become independent faster. You can do your own branding. You can you can interface with clientele as much as you want or don't want well, Yeah, to. as much as your bandwidth allows. <laughs> you really need to go deep and break out of your silo, Kristen. It's true. Leverage your assets. Get out of that sex silo. So what exactly, though, do dominatrices do? It depends on the sub a lot of times. It depends on the client. And also what dominatrices beforehand are willing and not willing to do. Yeah, and so Lindemann identified three main categories of services, which are pain-producing dominant, non-pain-producing dominant, and fetishistic. And there's also full service, which is, you know, a.k.a. sex, but that's typically, in most cases, off the table. Yeah, that's the thing. That's why uh, we mentioned the character in that episode of Sherlock isn't such a real-world depiction of a dominatrix because nudity, rarely going to happen. Sex, rarely going to happen. Well, the dom's nudity, yeah. Exactly, yes, yes. Thank you for clarifying that. (laughs) Well, so, you know, we've touched on the issue of money, but how much can you realistically make in this line of work? Uh, This is coming from a New York Mag article uh, in 2012. They found that independent doms can make about $1,000 per week and the rare dom will pull in upwards of $100,000 per year. But this is not exactly like a, a get-rich scheme. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind that that's gross $1,000 per week. Um, oh, and we should also mention, too, that clients do not pay a fee to the dominatrix. They pay a tribute. From the get-go, even when a client is, say, first calling up to request an appointment or emailing or whatever, IMing, Snapchatting. I don't know how they get in touch these days. Kids these days with their Snapchats. Pigeons. (laughs) When they send their pigeon messages, there is immediately the language of, uh, of DS, of a DS relationship. The dominatrix is addressed as mistress or even goddess and it's not money it's a tribute because you are coming to this mistress to do something for you you're 
You are lower than she or he, but usually she. Yeah. And there's the thing about hourly pay, which sounds amazing, but isn't necessarily so great because houses charge on average $180 per hour and doms take home around half of that plus tips and independents can charge $250 per hour. But you've also got to keep in mind that just because, so if you're working for a house for a dungeon, just because you're there for eight or 10 hours doesn't mean you're working eight or 10 hours. You're typically literally only getting paid for the hours that you are working. Yeah. So your traffic flow is obviously going to make a big difference. And then especially if you're independent, your overhead can cut into your profits as well because it's not cheap. Rental costs for your dungeon space and your wardrobe and also tools can cost Thousands. Fetishes don't come cheap. That's why there's this term, uh, pervertibles, which is uh, household items that can be converted into uh, fetish tools. It's really common. Pervertibles are really common because they help keep costs low because leather ain't cheap, y'all. It is not. And the word pervertible just makes me think. Makes me think of Lunchables for some reason. I don't know. I, I this is like back with the whipped cream. I'm I am I'm hungry. It's lunchtime. It folks. is lunchtime <laughs> when we're recording this. Um, but I mean, no, those items aren't cheap. But you can write them off on your taxes. Things like dildos and nipple clamps—they're not free, but they're in your line of work, so you can write them off and just be prepared to perhaps get audited. So keep those receipts, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, pro doms will write off their whips and handcuffs. It's true, um, and, and they do, especially if they're independent or freelance. As it as it goes in the freelancer economy, you are likelier to get audited. Um, but when it comes to making more money, if you want to make extra cash, there are certain services like nudity that will typically cost more. And in addition to just basic, basic dominatrix <laughs> services, which is a real understatement, additional cash is often made through related avenues like fetish modeling or hosting scene parties, teaching workshops, writing books, maybe even getting into uh, creating lines of your own sex toys or fetish products. Well, Kristen, there is one financial issue that we haven't touched on yet, which is the financial dom, who's far less common. But this is a woman who essentially takes over control to to varying extents per client request. Yes. Yes. Of a sub's finances. And this can involve anything from just like taking money to go buy food or having their rent covered to spending and earning thousands upon thousands of dollars per year. But just as your average, again, understatement, your average pro dom has rules to protect herself and the sub and there are definitely guidelines to follow. Your your average financial dom will also have rules in place so as not to bankrupt the sub or to completely damage his or her family life. But, you know, as with anything, there are bad apples in the bunch. Well, and speaking of bad apples in the bunch, prodoms often have to do extra work as well to keep their identities under wraps to keep their location secret. They'll usually rent out a separate dungeon space or um, sort of do a shared workspace with other dominatrices or um, erotic laborers of different types to help split costs because usually they don't want to do it in their own apartment because of unpleasant things like stalking, blackmail, and assault that unfortunately can sometimes come 
with the work. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, speaking of those potentially negative dynamics that come along with it, let's look at gender and sexuality dynamics of this line of work, because there's a lot of discussion around are dominatrices subverting the gender script? Are they becoming the masculine one? Are they a different type of feminine? What's going on with that? Well, it's interesting because, yeah, to a degree, of course, they're flipping the script by being so overtly dominant, especially because, and this is from the majority of dominatrices that Danielle Lindemann talked to in her research. It, it is a very um, male-female dynamic mm-hmm. with a female dominatrix and a male sub. And... So usually, yeah, the, the, the dominatrix is flipping the script, but, but, but importantly, clients can always use the safe word. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who can press the stop button, so to speak, if they're uncomfortable with things. And there's still some negotiated gendered scripts going on, even when, say, flogging is involved. There are still gender dynamics. That are happening. It's not all out the window. Right. Yeah. And and we did in preparing for these two episodes, read a lot about how this just because a person is a sub or a submissive or a slave doesn't mean they're completely powerless, that often they do. They are the one holding the power to stop things. But in terms of those gender roles and dynamics, are there male pro doms out there? Yes, but as Lindemann writes, they're much less socially visible and less prevalent in the industry of professional dominance than females who do sessions with male clients. Yeah, so it seems to be a highly female to male exchange. Interestingly, though, when it comes to sexuality, we didn't find any real formal studies on sexual orientations of uh, pro-doms. However, this was mentioned in Lindemann's book, and a majority of the women she talked to identified as bisexual. Similarly, Catherine Robe Grelet, the famous French dominatrix, also identifies as bisexual. She was married to a man at one point and now lives with a woman, for instance. And speaking to Vice, L.A. dominatrix Lady Leela Stern said, quote, most of the doms I know are lesbians or at least have a strong preference for women. So this also resonates with what we talked about in terms of how there's a lot more fluidity mm-hmm. within the BDSM community in general. So this makes sense. Yeah, and it also gives more of a reason for people to say that dominatrices are existing and working outside of the bounds of normal femininity. Yeah, and uh, some will also, too, differentiate between play sexuality mm-hmm. and their sex sexuality, which is, I think, important to keep in mind as well. I mean, again, this all relates back to our questions and sometimes qualms over sexual fantasy and acting those out and uh, playing around with taboo versus the day-to-day lives that we might live with our clothes on, usually. Although clothes are often on in these kinds of scenarios, too, I realize. But out in the, the day-to-day world, in our offices, 
Right. <laughs> Outside the dungeon, I should say. Yeah, exactly. And so we haven't talked though about why people visit pro doms and there are all sorts of reasons that really aren't necessarily correlated to someone's real world outside the dungeon power. Because, you know, there's all of these theories that um, a man is just tired of being in control, and so he wants to have his control stripped away by a woman. And, you know, we touched a little bit on that psychology in our first episode. Yeah, and I think it's it's notable, too, that there's so much focus on gender, of like, oh, are they finally subverting this gender role? It's been so firmly entrenched. And maybe, yeah, sure, sometimes, but it's so, it's not always about gender roles. It doesn't seem like it's very much about gender roles at all. Tracy Clark Flory interviewed a bunch of pro-doms and wrote about this in a piece for Alternet and found that there are often, yes, a lot of powerful men with money to spend because it is a pricey, Mm -hmm. uh, it is a pricey pursuit. It is a pricey pursuit. And they want to be the ones getting bossed around for once in a while and not have to think for themselves. Honestly, it resonated with me because that's why I go to yoga. Just tell me what to do. <laughs> I was not sure how you were going to end that sentence, Kristen. <laughs> yeah, well, not too much of a curveball there. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, th- yeah, there were a lot of doms she talked to that said it's I'm basically providing the same type of service as therapy. Yeah. Like people coming in and, you know, there was a mention of people getting emotional of letting go of letting off steam of not having to make the decisions. And this was also cited in the article, the New York Mag article that we read about financial doms, too, about like one of the women was quoted as saying something to the effect of, you know, these men work their whole lives to make Boku bucks. And for what? And they feel like they're controlled and enslaved by their money. And so they almost feel relief to give it away. And I mean, that's obviously just one small example in this huge spectrum of reasons why anyone would go. But You know, it all harkens back to theories that we mentioned in our first episode about why Victorians would be attracted to flage porn or spanking porn or things like that, because the society was so closed and so repressed and everyone had to be so concerned about all of these rules and boundaries and norms. And so to to enter a completely different dynamic that is so completely different from what you would experience in day-to-day life would almost be liberating to an extent. Well, and also, too, keeping in mind that a lot of these fetishes are, like, developed from an early age, like, the awareness of them. And so when it comes to the possible therapeutic aspects of this and how a lot of pro-doms say they feel like they provide a therapeutic service, that also makes sense because, you know, once you're finally an adult and perhaps you've been harboring this, like, kind of fantasy that makes you feel uncomfortable because you think it's wrong and taboo and then to finally sort of play that out has to also feel relieving in one way or another. It might not. Yes, it might be relief through pain and the release of endorphins. But uh, yeah. Yeah. And we talked in our first episode about Norma Ramos, who in 1995 wrote that piece for Ms. Magazine talking about how, you know, we've had women, we women have had oppression shoved down our throats forever. And so if we 
enjoy or want to pursue a submissive role, then we need to deal with that. And we need to uproot that. And we need to get to the bottom of why we feel like like that and then get rid of it, essentially, because it's negative and it's bad and we need to work around it. But there are plenty of examples of people who are oppressed for various other reasons, not just sexism, but also racism, poverty, past trauma, who have ended up fetishizing whatever that dynamic is. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they are pursuing those marginalized roles in the real world. Yeah, this was something that Melissa Fabos, who is a former pro-dom and author of the book Whip Smart, who now prefers a submissive role, has talked about. She said, quote, I still live in a culture that floods my consciousness with instructions to be a passive sexual object, that my only power rests in my sexuality as defined by men's desire. Might this create some anxiety in my own psyche? I think so. Have I eroticized those messages in order to locate them somewhere that won't impede my progress as an empowered, independent woman in the rest of my life? Maybe so, but so what? So that, I mean, I think that that's a, a good summary of sort of how you, how you can fetishize what we would normally think of as something that might be impossible or wrong to fetishize. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the idea that you know, some people do just want to get kinky. Yeah. They do just want to pursue a hobby. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there was the, the pro-dom, too, who's talking to Tracy Clark Flory about how there was there was a housewife that comes to her. And, I mean, think of in our stereotypical culture, like, what more subservient role is there than a housewife? And she just wanted to get kinky. She just wanted to do things maybe that her house husband, <laughs> business husband, didn't want to do. Yeah. I mean, we've blown through a lot of information in these past two episodes. You know, as we've talked about, there's no way we could delve into every different aspect of the BDSM and dominatrix communities. Um, but it is interesting that you have someone like Catherine Robb Grillet, the, the French dominatrix, and then you have a character like, you know, Angelina Jolie and Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It's, it's interesting to, to look at how something that is very real for so many people can be almost a character in pop culture and people are comfortable with it. But when you talk about actual women, actual human people, uh, working and living in this lifestyle, that's when people are like, it's dirty, you're a prostitute, you should be arrested and ashamed. Um, it's interesting, the separation that pop culture gives us. Well, and I would be curious, too, to know from pro-doms or just people within the BDSM community whether the pop cultural images that we see, especially for, say, the pop stars dressing up in bondage gear to show that they're naughty, mm-hmm. whether that is something that they welcome or something that just makes them roll their eyes or something that maybe keeps the community more closeted. Like, because it, like you said, I mean, that seems, there seems to be a disconnect between the images that we accept mm-hmm. and the ones that we're like, oh no, no, you stay over there. Yeah. You stay in your dungeon. Stay in San Francisco. So I'm really, really looking forward to the listener mail on this. We really want to hear from you all. What do you think about all of this stuff we've been talking about during Kink Week? Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. So, since it is Kink Week, I wanted to share a letter from Serene, who writes, 
I'm 30 years old and am a bondage model and video producer. I have a male business partner since bondage is usually a two-person thing and we split the workload and the profits evenly. I started doing this in 2009 and I love my job. While what I do is still defined as pornography since the goal is to arouse, our site does not do penetrations, orgasms, or oral sex or anything like that. Most of the girls keep their panties on the whole time. The fetish is bondage and that doesn't mean that sex is involved. The problem I have is that I feel like I can't tell my family what I do or have many female friends. My husband knows and is super supportive, but I feel like my family will just see it as a disappointment, stating that I had so much potential. It's funny, though. My father told me growing up that he wanted me to have a job where I could make money in my sleep, and since I produce content for my own site, I do exactly that, but I can't tell him. The other issue is having female friends. Most of my friends stopped talking to me once they had children and really didn't want me discussing my job with their husbands, even though... When I did, I wasn't talking about rubbing latex polish all over some girl. I was usually talking about something like how I set up a remote desktop app on my phone so I can still set things to upload when I'm out, or about a new filter on my editing program that helps fill in light. So I wasn't being inappropriate. They just knew that I was still talking about a porn site, and it didn't matter. My question is, at what point is it anti-feminist for all of these women and men to look down on me for choosing to do a profession that I want to do because I like it? I work in one of the few fields that women actually have power. In fetish porn, not only do customers allow for a wide range of body type, they allow for variation in looks, age. So I've hired women in their 50s that were still sexy and amazing. How is it not empowering for a 50-plus-year-old woman to be so self-confident that she is willing to get tied up on film for the arousal of other people and have a blast doing it? I have a fun, amazing job. Why should I be made to feel bad about it in the name of feminism? Shouldn't feminism be about being able to do whatever job you choose to do because you want it, despite what everyone else thinks. So, Serene, hopefully you have listened to these past two episodes because I, at least, I I, I don't think that uh, you should feel bad about what you do in the name of feminism. I think that your friend's hang-ups are just that. They're hang-ups. Maybe we need to do a follow-up podcast. (laughs) And curious, too, to hear from other listeners on this as well. Yeah. Well, I have a letter from a listener who would like to remain anonymous, and she's writing in about our female ejaculation episode. She says, uh, I wanted to email you guys about your squirting podcast since I thought it was very interesting and informative. Recently, I've also been looking up squirting since it's been something I've been trying to understand. The reason why I'm emailing you is because what I am about to say is going to be super personal and I don't want my friends asking about it because that would be sort of embarrassing. So I squirt, or at least I think I do. The amount of liquid changes depending on how aroused I am. Sometimes a lot, sometimes a little. So I don't know how you would really classify that on the ejaculation squirting meter. (laughs) If only we had an ejaculation squirting meter. Okay, that's my aside. Anyway, she continues. At first, I was very embarrassed about it, like humiliated. All I could think of was about how on Orange is the New Black, squirting is a joke. I decided to start looking it up to comfort myself, but the research was conflicting. One, I don't use a dildo or anything. Nothing goes in my vagina when I squirt, meaning the G-spot is never touched. The squirting only happens when I'm having a really good time, so it's based purely on arousal. Two, 
It doesn't smell or look like pee. My pee, because I need to drink a lot of water, is usually dark yellow. So if I peed the bed, it would stain. Three, the liquid dries quickly, or at least for me it does, which rules out the pee thing a bit too. All of these things just didn't add up to anything I read. Squirting, I also find, can be kind of hard to do. Like, I don't do it every time. So if anyone is feeling ashamed because they squirt, they shouldn't. Mainly because squirting feels amazing. It's twice as pleasurable than if you don't. Like, I feel like I am sinking into the bed. The whole stigma around it is stupid. I felt so passionately about this that I wanted to try and put it into my work somewhere. I'm a comic book artist. No one should feel embarrassed like I did. Well, so thank you, anonymous listener, for your letter. I hope it helps out um, fellow listeners who are feeling the same insecurities. And I'm glad that you've gotten over your own insecurity. And now we want to hear from you. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with all of our dominatrix sources so you can read along and learn more, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 